Jingle, jingle, everybody, and welcome to the December 2021 edition of Right on Prime. My name is Heidi James, and I am joined by my good friend, Dr. Vanessa Cardi. Good to see you, Vanessa. Good to see you too, Heidi. It's great to be back, really and truly, because I love that no matter what else is going on in the world at large, whether it's fun and exciting stuff or, you know, sometimes overwhelming and alarming, we always get to meet back here and take a wee bit of time to chat about family medicine and the work that we love. Ah, so true, Vanessa, so true. And given that you are already waxing poetic about our jobs and what we do for a living, I assume you have a case that you would like to present with Flourish as well. Oh, I certainly do. I have an eye case for us this month. And I'm not sure about you, Heidi, but I find that ophthalmology stuff can sometimes be a wee bit difficult when you're in your office or even in the emergency room, as you don't always have a ton of fancy tools, and it always feels like there is so much on the line. I mean, screw up and they go blind. Okay, fine. (laughs) Not all complaints end up being that severe, but still, that niggling fear of total, immediate, complete and utter blindness because you miss something is hiding there in the shadows. Ooh, I know. I know. When I see someone, it's like, hmm, I hope it's an easy viral conjunctivitis or maybe a lacrimal duct blockage, because I feel very confident in managing those. But we can't always be that lucky, Vanessa. So tell me about your patient. The case. So she was a 24-year-old female with no significant medical history. She had no known allergies. She took no medications, but she did have a copper IUD. She was in a monogamous relationship, and she worked as a childcare attendant at the local daycare. So she presented to the clinic with a one-week history of mild photophobia, tearing, and a feeling that her vision was just slightly off. She thought maybe it was seasonal allergies because of the time of the year, particularly as she'd had a runny nose recently as well. So she used some over-the-counter allergy eye drops, but they really didn't have any effect. And she was just kind of trying to wait it out, but then her eyes became increasingly red. And given that she works in a daycare, people are kind of on the lookout for pink eyes and she couldn't really go into work. (laughs) She denied any history of trauma or any recent exposure to possible foreign bodies. And she denied any rash anywhere else on her body or on her face. This is a healthy young woman with some mild, maybe moderate eye symptoms. What did you find when you examined her? Because I know you examined her. You're thorough. Well, her vitals were stable and she looked pretty well overall. I mean, she did have bilateral conjunctival erythema and a bit of tearing, but there was no edema around her eyes. There was no purulent discharge. She squinted when doing the Snellen test and when bright lights were turned on, but otherwise she was able to look about normally. Her visual acuity, which was normally 20-20, was actually 20-30 bilaterally. Her pupils were reactive, and her extraocular movements and visual fields were normal. I popped in a few drops of fluorescein, and then I grabbed the ophthalmoscope. So her cornea was a wee bit hazy, and it was dotted with a scattering of little spots that lit up the fluorescein. Her intraocular pressures were normal, as were her fundi. And insofar as the rest of the exam, the only thing that really stood out elsewhere were bilateral, palpable, and mildly tender preauricular nodes. Ooh, jingle, jingle. I feel like that could be important. And you would be right in thinking that, Heidi, because remember how I said that this patient worked in a daycare center? Well, being a daycare worker is a major risk factor for developing a whole whack of infections. Not surprising when you think of the volume of spit and snot and likely countless other secretions that are coated on these very sweet but extremely sticky kids. And one of the top dogs in the daycare viral family, of course, is the adenovirus. And this can cause nastier diseases like pneumonia, but quite commonly causes cold-like symptoms, in addition to the preauricular lymph node swelling. Aha, aha, so she had a virus from the sounds of things. But this really doesn't sound like a typical viral conjunctivitis now, because we don't usually see that pitting on the cornea. So what do you think is going on? 
Well, you're quite right, Heidi. Those corneal changes were the giveaway for the diagnosis of superficial punctate keratitis, or SPK. Now, SPK might sound scary, but in most cases, it's actually pretty benign. Please elaborate. What exactly is SPK? So it's a scattered inflammation of the cornea from little areas of corneal loss or damage. There are actually a bunch of different processes that can lead to SPK, but viral infection is certainly very common. Other causes include Bell's palsy, drug toxicities, contact lens overuse, blepharitis, and, scary old scary, trachoma. And trachoma is the badness that happens when chlamydia goes to places it wasn't meant to go, like the eye, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Something we definitely want to avoid. Now, obviously, those causes need further workup and treatment, but if you have a good history of adenovirus exposure and symptoms with a corroborating physical exam, then there's no need to be too concerned here. SPK from adenovirus will tend to resolve on its own within a few weeks, but you can always provide analgesics and artificial tears to help soothe the uncomfortable sensations that can come with SPK. This is a good case, Vanessa. Thanks for sharing it. It's a good overview of a slightly unusual complication of a common condition. Yeah, I thought it was a good case, something that could be scary, something you have to think about, the more concerning diagnoses, but in this case, it was pretty straightforward. But now moving on, Heidi, what do we have lined up for the rest of this month? We have a great show lined up to close out the year, Vanessa. On PCMA, Steve and Ken are back with their 10, the top 10 family medicine papers of the month. Then Hobie and I chat about how to maintain a posture of empathy when dealing with some of our more challenging patients. And then moving on to the generalist, Jake Anderson joined you to chat about VTE prophylaxis for our hospitalized patients. And Adrian Salim and I are chatting about the often distressing trigeminal neuralgia. Finally, on Rural Med, you talk to our very favorite Canadian-turned-Icelandic emergency physician, Eric Contin, as you discuss the care of avalanche victims. All right, Vanessa, so let's head on in to Right on Prime, December 2021. Heidi, it's nice to see you again. Happy to have another conversation with you. Always good to see you, Hobie. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. I have a question for you. Do you have any difficult patients in your practice? Nope. I do not. Okay. (laughs) I'll call liar. Liar. I'll call liar on that. Liar! Liar! Yeah, liar, liar, pants on fire. I totally do. I totally do. I just wanted you to think that, you know, this great doctor. Yeah. I I was thinking (laughs) I need to move to your practice and become one of your partners because if you have no difficult patients, that sounds like a very idyllic practice to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do have some patients who, to steal one of your terms, uh, would require a more nuanced approach to their care. And I guess you could call them difficult or challenging patients. But I try very hard not to think of them as difficult patients, because if I think of them in that way, well, it's the old saying, what you focus on increases. So if I think they're difficult, I'm going to find them more difficult, and it's going to be harder and harder to be their doctor. At least that's what I tell myself on a good day. So I'm with you 100%. And I think one of the things that has become more clear to me as I practice is that many of these patients aren't being difficult on purpose. It's not that they're intentionally trying to sabotage me or their own care, but they struggle and they have mental health issues, particularly maybe personality disorders that contribute to how they interact with the world, not just me, but their whole world in general. And that's what makes it so frustrating and challenging to help try to take care of these patients. 
of the personality disorders, I sometimes find borderline personality disorder the most challenging to provide the kind of ongoing family practice care that I would like to provide. And like a personality disorder is potentially such a tremendous source of disability and ill-being for these patients. And it's so highly stigmatized Mm -hmm. by our profession that I really feel for people who have these conditions, even though it's hard to be their doctor sometimes. Yeah. And I can imagine, even as we're talking about this, some of our listeners may be having almost a visceral or emotional response, right? As they think about a patient that they have who struggles with this borderline personality disorder and how much it affects them in terms of how they take care of their day or plan their day around taking care of this patient. Heidi, can you run us through some stats about personality disorders? Yeah, for sure. In the general population, personality disorders are run about 10%. On inpatient psychiatry services, it's closer to 20%. And overall, 1.5% of patients have borderline personality disorder. And that's just the official disorders, because we know very well that these traits exist outside of having the official diagnosis. And very fascinating to me, one British study found that out of consecutive family medicine patients, 24% of them had a personality disorder. So one in four patients that we see in the run of a day has a personality disorder. What? Yeah. Yeah. 24%. One in four. That is crazy high. I mean... I I would say some days do feel like that. Maybe it feels even higher, right? But if you told me one in four of your patients potentially has a personality disorder, I would have said, no way. That seems way too high to me, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. But it does show that folks with personality disorders have high rates of accessing care if one in four of folks we see have a personality disorder. And it actually impacts life expectancy as well. They live an average of 18 years less than the general population. Like, that's that's big, 18 years. And folks with borderline personality disorder, what we see for them in particular is this pattern of unstable relationships and this unstable sense of self. And it can manifest as these strong emotional reactions to things that might not elicit the same response in others. And we see poor impulse control as well. And what do we see in the office? Well, we see people who are self-harming. We see substance use disorder. And we can see higher rates of suicide as well. And I guess that's not surprising if you see the world through a very emotionally charged filter. Yeah, I I think that makes things particularly challenging. Yeah. And that's the part that I think those just wild swings make it a little bit more challenging, right? When everything is interpreted with such a charged emotional filter. Yeah, definitely. So what I'm hoping we can talk about, Hobie, is how to make sure that our patients with borderline personality disorder get the care they need. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So looking through the literature and just brainstorming, I came up with a list of a few things. Okay. So we'll go through them. Let's do it. So the first thing we need to do is educate ourselves about what borderline personality and other personality disorders are and understand how these people tick. Like, why are they the way they are? And making sure that our staff and learners have this education as well, because our staff interact with our patients with borderline personality disorder more than we do. And we need to understand that this is a diagnosable condition that impacts the way they interact with the world. Like you said earlier, it's not intentional. The second thing is having compassion. A lot of these patients with borderline have a lot of trouble in their past. They have trauma. They have had events that were beyond their control, right? And they didn't choose this, right? I mean, I think we would all recognize, you know, we wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy, right? Because it disrupts their lives. And while we have this frustration with them while they're in the clinic for a short period of time, they are walking through life, 
right? And every interaction that they have is like this. And so I would say using things like the adverse childhood experiences or the ACEs and scoring them might be a good way to start having compassion and understanding how childhood trauma might be a contributing factor to some of how they're dealing with the world now or how they're coping in the world now. If you combine that educating yourself and having compassion, that increases our ability to not take it personally because sometimes the drama and the the personality can draw us into it and it gets our ego defenses all up on edge. But we need to remember that, like we do with all of our patients, like this is not about us. We need to remain professional. Yeah, I think that's such a good word, but so hard to do, right? Yeah. Um, I think as a physician, we walk into every room and we say, I'm here to help. I'm a helper. I'm a healer. I'm here to try to help make your life better. And when patients attack us or question that, it's hard not to take that personally, right? Yeah. Personally, I'll just say it's hard for me not to take it personally because it goes against the very ethos of who I am as a person, right? I want to help you, right? (laughs) And so when people question that, it really bothers me. But I think understanding, again, it's not intentional. They have a pathological disease. This is how it manifests itself. And sort of recognizing that to try to be a calm and steady presence, right? Yeah. And that their relationships are often marked by volatility. And that if we get defensive, or if we get emotional, it kind of feeds into that cycle and makes things worse. I think particularly we have to work with our staff and our learners on this because they often have more contact, right? The people who check them in and the MA who vitals them and, and the staff who's calling them for their appointments, they can also take it very personally, right? And they, it can cause a lot of burnout for them. And so I, I do think that's something that we can do to help prepare our work environments so that we, these patients can get the support they need and we can really be the foundation, kind of a solid foundation they can lean upon. Another trend I've seen recently, which is so encouraging, and I'm so glad it's happening, is that there seems to be more of an effort to help patients understand their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Like I have patients come in and say, hey, I've been seeing a psychologist and they tell me I have borderline personality disorder. And it's just so empowering for people to begin to understand how they're wired. And I've noticed that this is helping some of my patients understand what's going on and how to help them better interact with their world. So Hobie, one of the things I find challenging with my patients with personality disorders, and I guess any mental health condition, is they often only interact with us when they're in crisis. We run into the tyranny of the urgent. We see them when they're breaking down, when they're suicidal, when their house is on fire. And what I struggle with sometimes is how do we not miss the other important things we need to talk with them about, about their health? Yeah, that's a really tricky one. And I would say there are probably, again, no easy answers here, but I think some of the things that we can try are to schedule regular standard appointments for these patients. So I think a lot of these patients will benefit when they know they have a scheduled time to talk to their doctor, right? And I think that often will alleviate the house on fire, the urgent, I got to see my doctor today kind of calls that we get. I think also scheduling these appointments gives you some flexibility because hopefully the house isn't totally on fire and maybe there are days the house is not on fire at all. On those days, you can identify and deal with some of the other really important health matters, their other chronic disease, their preventive medicine, their screenings, their all the other stuff that sometimes is hard to fit. And, you know, I always try to tell our residents, like part of this is approach of and and not or, right? And so can you deal with their acute issue and also deal with one small preventive issue, one small chronic disease management issue, right? Don't make it an or where it only can be their issue or it can only be our agenda, but try to work together and find a healthy middle space where you can deal with both. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not always saying that's always possible either, right? Depending on where they're at. 
But I think if we can get to that idea of always trying to make it an and process and not an or process, really beneficial. Yeah, very true. Now, Hobie, the good news here is that borderline personality disorder, like many chronic health care conditions, can be managed. Because I think we sometimes fall into the trap of, oh, this patient has borderline personality disorder. It's the way they are. There's nothing we can do to help them. And that's not true. So thank you in advance for walking us through just the briefest of overviews of the current recommendations for treatment. Number one. A couple of things. So we talked a little bit about this, but always providing lots of education to patients, I think is super important. The more they understand about their own disease process, the better off they'll be. Number two. We talked about the increased risk of suicidality and some other issues. And so really sitting down with patients, making sure they have a crisis plan and that if they are suicidal, that they know how to contact your clinic for support, how to contact local resources and online resources, connecting them to support groups, all those kind of things I think are really super important. Number three. Thinking about uh, treating their comorbidities, other mood disorders, substance use disorder, which we talked about, or even things like eating disorders. All these manifest strongly in groups with borderline personality disorder. And so making sure that you don't miss those uh, in terms of optimizing your patient's care, I think is really important. Number four. And then understanding the role of medications, which is pretty limited in the care of borderline personality disorder, but really thinking about using them very short term for very severe episodes, but really trying to focus on some of the other comorbid conditions that we just mentioned and really trying to take a holistic approach to screening for these patients. Number five. Therapy is possible and DBT really is the preferred form of therapy. And then also getting psychiatry involved can be helpful. And while, again, we talked about that medications aren't super useful, psychiatrists do deal with these patients probably more frequently than we do, and they often can be helpful in trying to create a care plan for some of these patients. And there's been a little bit of research on prevention in borderline personality disorder. The notion that is, if you spot features of BPD in young adolescents, if you get them into specific types of therapy, Early on, you can prevent development of full-fledged borderline personality, which is very intriguing, and I hope it takes off. That's really interesting, and I do think that anything that we can do to focus on prevention would be super helpful, because I think we all recognize that when the disorder is kind of fully matured, uh, often it's a real struggle, right? I mean, it's just really hard to take it. We all want to do the right thing for these patients, and sometimes they're just not in an emotional state to be able to participate in their own care, which I think makes things super challenging. Yeah, it sure does. And it's a good reminder that we need to work hard to not let our own frustrations and biases stand in their way of accessing the care they need. And the way to address that is develop our skills to help these patients as best we can. Okay, Hobie, thanks so much. This has been a good conversation as always. Yeah, it's been great. It's wonderful chatting with you and look forward to talking next month. cardiac arrest and our building just lost power all right give me jumper cables rubber gloves 3,000 grams of soul medrol stack what are you macgyver no i'm the generalist i'm joined today by great friend of the show dr jake anderson jake is a family physician who is on faculty with university of arizona and has a lovely broad spectrum of practice and that includes hospital medicine and evidence-based medicine Hey, Heidi. Good to be here. 
And he'll be here on a recurring basis, Jake, to help us sort the wheat from the chaff when it comes to our hospital-based practices. I am with you. But unfortunately, we're often left to practicing as we trained. And sometimes it's not always evidence-based. So nice to dive into some of these topics and figure out the evidence-based answers. Yeah. And the topic at hand today is DVT prophylaxis or VTE prophylaxis in hospitalized patients. And I am extra happy to talk about this because I remember distinctly about eight years ago, we moved to having a clinical order set for uh, venothromboembolism prophylaxis. And I remember some of my slightly older colleagues being outraged saying, this isn't going to make a hill of beans difference. It's going <laughs> to cause harms and cause problems. And all of us newer grads were like, uh-uh-uh, this is the way to go. So I am looking forward to getting the more up-to-date information here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's really important because we know that half of all VTEs are linked to a current or recent hospitalization, half of them. Yeah, it's not hard to see why, right? Somebody in the hospital is inevitably going to have multiple risk factors for VTE. Hospitalizations are associated with immobility, of course, and the people in the hospital are typically sick. They're typically older. They may have had a recent surgery or trauma. They have catheters in place, central venous catheters. So lots of reasons why this group of patients might be at high risk for DVT. Yeah, so we definitely absolutely want to have VTE prevention or prophylaxis on our radar when we're looking after hospitalized patients. It's a big deal. And like you said, a lot of us work in places that have these care sets. We also have entire campaigns at times focused on improving our VTE prevention, that constant reminder in the EHR to put on VTE prophylaxis. Yeah, it's everywhere. And while it would seem that this is something we should definitely intervene on, the actual data supporting VTE prophylaxis for our hospitalized patients is less clear. It's a bit muddy. Yeah, tell us what you mean about that. It looks like the benefit of prophylaxis is actually pretty minimal. So mm. kind of surprising there. And this represents a shift from previous older studies that showed a bigger benefit. And to complicate things a little bit more, because that's what research likes to do, <laughs> there have been multiple studies that show that a significant proportion of people that get a VTE linked to their hospitalization had actually received prophylaxis. That's right. We're giving mm. them prophylaxis because they're in the hospital and they still get it. And get this, the risks for VTE that comes along with hospitalization persists for quite a while after they're hospitalized, something like up to 90 days. So why, Jake, do we prophylax for a short period during that hospitalization? Why do we do that to make a difference? Yeah, I have a lot of these questions about VTE prophy, and not all of them can be answered by looking at the evidence, unfortunately. But let's dive a bit into the nuance of VTE prophylaxis for hospitalized patients, mainly based on the guidance given to us by certain guidelines and societies. Now, we should first remind everyone that VTE prophylaxis, you can do it in a few different ways. There's pharmacologic and mechanical. Yeah, mechanical prophylaxis can be done with like compression stockings or these foot pumps. What I see most where I practice is there are these pneumatic compression devices. Those seem to be the equivalent of giving your leg a little hug or a little squeeze. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And if you're gonna go the compression stocking route, uh, you'll wanna use caution in people with like sensory impairment, so neuropathy. People with lower extremity wounds, sometimes you'll wanna avoid it in that. And those with peripheral artery disease might be at risk of complication of the compression stockings for VTE prophylaxis. Do you know what the strength is on these compression stockings? Are they like the 20 to 30 millimeters or higher than 30? That's a good question. In my outpatient practice, I typically start with like the 20 to 30, but most of the recommendations were on these graded compression stockings and the pressure was usually like 10 to 15. So a little more mild for VTE prophylaxis compared to other uses. Long story short on mechanical prophylaxis is they probably work better than nothing. Is that a fair statement? That's definitely true, at least based on a 2013 Cochrane review. It showed that when compared to no prophylaxis at all, mechanical prophylaxis with intermittent pneumatic compression was found to have a number needed to treat between 17 and just over 100 to prevent a DVT compared to no prophylaxis. And that was in trauma patients specifically. I'll say this in full honesty. Sometimes I go do my rounds and I say to my patients, you need to move your legs while you're in here. <laughs> like do leg lifts, move them up and down your bed just to help prevent blood clots. Did you find anything in the literature that would support my practice? Yeah, good question. And I'm the same way. I feel like if people can just be up and moving that they're going to lower their risk. And actually some of the risk calculators take that into consideration when you're deciding whether to start people on prophylaxis at all, but not specific data comparing prescribing people walk around the room as opposed to using these compression devices or chemical prophylaxis. Okay. Or in bed leg lifts, that would be a, <laughs> yeah. a, a tricky one, a tricky one. Pretend you're training for synchronized swimming in the Olympics. Just do your leg clips. <laughs> Point oh. the toes, yeah. <laughs> let's go, people. Let's go. I want to see those legs in the air. And then back down. And lift. 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 Doctor, please stop yelling at me. How do these mechanical prophylaxis options compare to pharmacologic prophylaxis? Right. Yeah, that same Cochrane review showed a number needed to treat of about 48 to 400, so a huge range again. But when comparing pharmacologic prophylaxis to prevent a DVT compared with mechanical prophylaxis. So mechanical is better than nothing. Pharmacologic is better than mechanical. Now, medications that we can use to prevent VTE include the low molecular weight heparins, like anoxaparin and deltaparin, as well as fondaparinix. And we can't forget that infractionated heparin is also an option, but it is less preferred and should be reserved for those who are unable to take low molecular weight heparin or the fondaparinix. So that's something to think about in your patients with low renal function, especially. Pharmacologic profi also technically includes like the direct oral anticoagulant group, but these medications should not be started solely for VTE prophylaxis in the hospital. If the patient's already on a DOAC for another reason, though, you can count that as your VTE prophylaxis and avoid additional profi. As we've been alluding to here, Jake, being able to identify these patients that would benefit from chemical prophylaxis and those who would be fine with mechanical prophylaxis versus even no prophylaxis is important and not strictly intuitive. Yeah, yeah. Deciding between those three options of chemical or mechanical or no prophylaxis is much easier in theory, the people making these care sets, than when actually in practice at the bedside. 
So there are some risk calculators that you can use to help risk stratify your hospitalized patients. The one that we'll point out is called the PADWA prediction score. We point to this because actually some of our guidelines use this prediction score to determine. So this is an 11-item, 20-point scale that takes into consideration things like previous VTE, active cancer, decreased mobility, age 70 and up, recent trauma, surgery, heart respiratory failure, and obesity. Hmm. And this one is nice because remember that 90-day window we talked about after being in the hospital when people are at higher risk of VTE? Well, this mm-hmm. gives us a 90-day VTE risk prediction. And if you want the numbers, four points is when you stop being low risk and become high risk. Yeah. And the decision to use chemical prophylaxis should not only consider this, of course. This is helpful, though, in identifying the patients who are at higher risk for clot. You should also consider their risk for bleeding, right? And so there are also predictor tools for that. They take into consideration risk factors for bleeding, like people uh, with liver or kidney disease, active peptic ulcer disease, active bleeding, concomitant use of a lot of medications. So obvious things like aspirin or steroids, but also things that I wouldn't necessarily think of, like antibiotics that may increase the risk for bleeding. There are so many different meds that increase our bleeding risk that we don't even really think of. So this sounds like a really solid tool to help us make these decisions. We will include links in the show notes. Okay, Jake, there are some guidelines that have weighed in on VTE prophylaxis. Let's turn our attention to them. Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of groups that we look to for some guidance in this. The American Society of Hematology and then the American College of Chest Physicians both have guidance. So the American Society of Hematology says generally use pharmacologic prophylaxis as the first line for VTE prophylaxis. But again, mechanical is better than nothing. So if they can't tolerate pharmacologic prophylaxis, mechanical is okay. And the American College of Chess Physicians, they recommend that the PODWA, not the POD1 prediction score, <laughs> be used to determine the need for prophylaxis. And again, remember, a score of four or more would indicate that you're high risk and you should have one of these types of prophylaxis. They say to use pharmacologic prophylaxis unless the patient is bleeding or at high risk for bleeding in which case mechanical prophylaxis would be preferred. The guidelines all agree that prophylaxis should not extend beyond hospitalization for hospitalized patients with medical illness, as opposed to the so-called extended duration prophylaxis, where hospitalized patients are continued on prophy after discharge. Okay, so let me see if I can summarize the guidelines recommendations here. We use a risk score to see if our patient needs it. We know that pharmacologic prophylaxis is the preferred means if possible, and we continue it only while the patient is hospitalized. Yeah, and that approach is great for patients who are critically ill as well, and actually those who are hospitalized for trauma as well. So not just our patients who are hospitalized with a medical condition, but those hospitalized for trauma. And I think we would be remiss here, Jake, if we didn't mention what is not recommended. And it's not recommended to go looking for a DVT with an ultrasound. You don't need to go fishing. Right. Yeah. Do not use screening ultrasound for DVT, even in the highest risk patients. If they don't have signs or symptoms, you don't go looking. And there's another thing, too, is thank heavens they're smart enough to recommend not putting an inferior vena cava filter for prophylaxis because every hematologist I know would track me down at my house on a weekend and read me out if I did this. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. No need to preemptively place these IVC filters as means of VTE prophylaxis. But, you know, these recommendations come because people are doing this. And I think it, you know, people who are immobilized due to significant illness, I think there's wondering whether they're at high enough risk for VTE that you should do some of these extreme measures. But yes, do not place that IVC filter for Profi. Here's the question that's been burning at the back of my mind since we started talking about the different types of prophylaxis. Is two better than one? Can we combine these? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So if mechanical and pharmacologic are both decent options, putting them together, is that better? There's actually some evidence that there's additive benefit. The guidelines have stayed away from recommending this for most people. They do say you can consider it for those who are at the highest risk for VTE. And so like somebody who's had an acute spinal injury or a traumatic brain injury, and now they're completely immobilized because of that, you can consider both mechanical and chemical prophylaxis if they can tolerate it. Now I'm going to put you on the spot here, Jake, with a case. And I'm going to give you a hypothetical case and you can let me know what your choices are for VTE prophylaxis. We got a 73-year-old man admitted with a COPD exacerbation because his O2 needs exceed what he can get at home. We suspect he's going to be in hospital for, you know, three, four, five days, so long enough that VTE prophylaxis makes sense. What do you choose for this person? That's a great question and, oh, a very common situation, right? So it sounds like, depending on his renal function, he would be one that would benefit from chemical prophylaxis. We're going to put him on steroids, right? That increases his risk for bleeding. But if he's not on other blood thinners and has normal renal function, then assuming he's going to be pretty immobile uh, while he's recovering from the COPD exacerbation, I would start him on a chemical prophylaxis and probably low molecular weight heparin. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I would agree with that. And of course, I'd get him to do the Dr. James patented leg lifts and walk around the room if he could. <laughs> I love it. Come into an infomercial near you. <laughs> For only 15 payments at $29.99, get Dr. James's leg lift video today. Listen, Jake, it's been great to have you here to talk about all things VTE prophylaxis. And I can't wait till you stop by again to talk with us about hospital medicine. Yeah, thank you, Heidi. Greetings all, it's Vanessa Carty here, and today I'm once again joined by Adrian Salim. Hello, Adrian, and thank you for coming back. And I gather you want to talk to us about trigeminal neuralgia. So what made you want to talk about that topic? I diagnose several patients with trigeminal neuralgia in the past few months. And, and each time I see it, I have to do some reading up on it because it's just, it's not one of those things that I really feel like I've got a great handle on. So with your research, did you learn some interesting tidbits? I sure did, Cardi. Really good, clinically relevant stuff. So I figure that if I'm learning about something, then I think we should all learn about it together. How does that sound? Ben, you are so very kind. <laughs> so why don't we start with the basics? And why don't you start with telling us about how trigeminal neuralgia presents? The main symptom is paroxysmal facial pain along one or more branches of the trigeminal nerve. And the most common branches affected are either the maxillary or the mandibular branch. So these episodes, they're brief. They only last a few seconds, but they're intense, right? They're, they're like this lancing, electrical shooting kind of pain. And most of the time, they're triggered by something like pretty innocuous. It could be something like gently touching the face, 
or if the patient has food or water in their mouth, or even like wind lightly brushing up on the face can do it as well. And the vast majority of the time, the pain is going to be unilateral. If it's bilateral, that's kind of a red flag for a secondary cause. And we'll talk about secondary causes in a second. Somewhere between 25 to 50% of patients are going to have a continuous facial pain in that same distribution as that like episodic shock-like pain. And that continuous pain is often described as like a gnawing or a throbbing or sort of like an aching kind of pain. And just to paint a really clear picture of this, the pain from trigeminal neuralgia can be so severe and unrelenting that patients have completed suicide because of it. So that's just really to get an idea of how truly awful this can be. And so what are you seeing clinically when you see these patients? The first thing that I've noticed is that for whatever reason, rarely do patients describe that classic paroxysms of pain. I kind of have to tease that out of them. And then another common thread is that most of these patients had initially assumed it was something else. A lot of patients had gone to the dentist, assuming it was dental pain, or they were at a walk-in clinic and they thought it was sinusitis, so they got some antibiotics for sinusitis, and obviously that didn't really help. And the one aspect that has been present in pretty much everyone that I've seen so far is that they're basically just at their wit's end, like they're tired, they're just in so much pain, and they just look defeated. I feel like this is somewhat similar to cannabis hyperemesis syndrome in some respects, so you could read about the clinical manifestations and you can hear about it on a podcast, but you haven't really experienced it till you see someone going through cannabis hyperemesis because they look just awful. They look like they're in distress. They just look like they're at their wit's end, right? I find it similar to trigeminal neuralgia where you can kind of read about the symptoms. You can sort of understand it, but until you've seen someone going through it, it really drives it home. I totally agree. I remember reading about this in med school and residency for exams, and, you know, it didn't sound like it was going to be that bad. And then I saw my first patient with it, and this image is still seared in my mind of this poor young woman. She was like 25 years old, and she developed this trigeminal neuralgia. And everything, like you said, she'd got, you know, so many courses of antibiotics for sinusitis. She'd gone to the dentist so many times. She'd had teeth taken out. And then she'd become, you know, basically almost addicted to opiates. Her marriage had fallen apart. It was a total disaster. And she was in agony and she was at her wit's end. It was awful. And whenever I see or hear about trigeminal neuralgia, I always think of that patient. Yeah. And that's been my experience too. In terms of the research that you did, was there any breakdown with male versus female? My understanding is that it's more common in women, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. So TN definitely has a female predominance, but it's certainly not only females who get it. And its incidence also increases with age. So it's mostly seen after the age of 50. Now, do you want to speak a little bit about the etiology, as in how and why does trigeminal neuralgia actually happen? Right. So there are three main forms of trigeminal neuralgia. There's a classical type, there's secondary trigeminal neuralgia, and then there's idiopathic. So the classic form is by far the most common. And what happens here is that there's compression of the trigeminal nerve at its root by a vascular structure, and the most common being the superior cerebellar artery. So the artery, you know, it crisscrosses the trigeminal nerve, and then it causes a flattening of the nerve. And then that leads to the symptoms that we see, all right? So that's a classic trigeminal neuralgia. Now, secondary causes account for about 15% of TN, and the majority of these are either multiple sclerosis or tumors. Now, interestingly, about 2 to 5% of patients who have MS will, at some point during their disease course, have trigeminal neuralgia. And MS-associated trigeminal neuralgia is actually harder to treat. Now, in terms of tumors, the most likely culprits here are acoustic neuromas, meningiomas, and cholesteatomas. And then finally, about 10% of patients with trigeminal neuralgia have the idiopathic type, where we just basically don't know why they're having it. But what about other diagnoses to consider if someone is coming in with facial pain? What's the differential for unilateral facial pain? Yeah, so that lancing, paroxysmal, unilateral facial pain is pretty typical for trigeminal neuralgia. But other pathologies to consider would be like dental infections and abscesses, post neuralgia, 
TMJ dysfunction, sinusitis, craniofacial malignancies. I mean, those are the top ones that I'd consider when I see patients coming in with what I think is trigeminal neuralgia. But what else do you have? Like, what other things are you considering? I guess I might think of giant cell arteritis if the uh, neuralgia is in the V1 distribution, and then possibly salivary stones as well if it's food triggered. I guess those would be on my differential. Mm -hmm. And one of the patients I actually saw not too long ago, she just had a temporal artery biopsy done for suspected GCA because she had pain in that V1 distribution. Obviously, the biopsy came back negative, but I think that's probably what she had. I think she had trigeminal neuralgia. And then there's also a bunch of other, you know, weird and wonderful headache syndromes that could also cause intense facial pain, but these are much more rare. And I think a good pearl here is that there are a few diagnostic considerations for someone coming in with unilateral facial pain. However, most of them should be pretty obvious after a fairly good history and physical, like a dental abscess or post-hepatic neuralgia, is hopefully going to be something that you can tease out. So if you've ruled those out and you have someone sitting there with unilateral, episodic, intense facial pain, there's a very good chance that this could be trigeminal neuralgia. Yeah, agree 100%. Now, what about imaging? I'm wondering, is MRI the gold standard? MRI is the modality of choice if you're going to be imaging a person with trigeminal neuralgia. And the advantage is that you know, it can see the trigeminal nerve really well, and it can identify if there is that vascular compression that's responsible for that classic type. It can also identify if there's any other, you know, demyelinating lesions, if there's any tumors that could be causing that secondary type of trigeminal neuralgia. The problem, though, is that MRIs, obviously, you know, it's not available everywhere. And also, it's not 100% sensitive at picking up those morphological changes in the trigeminal nerve that you see with vascular compression. So do you think we should be sending all those patients with trigeminal neuralgia or in whom we suspect trigeminal neuralgia off for an MRI? I mean, I think you could certainly make a case for it. I think if availability is not a concern and you have timely access to MRI, then sure, I think that's totally reasonable to just send everyone for it. But you and I both know that, you know, there's a lot of settings that just don't have an MRI, you know, right next door. So I think if you have someone and it sounds like a good story for trigeminal neuralgia and you're not overly concerned about like a secondary cause, then I think you can hold off on MRI right off the bat and you can go ahead and treat the patient. But say the patient is younger or their symptoms are atypical or their bilateral symptoms, or maybe it's not improving with the usual treatments, then in that case, I think an MRI should be ordered. Well, you mentioned treatments, so let's chat a little bit about that. My understanding is that carbamazepine is first line for these folks. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So carbamazepine is first line and the usual starting dose is 100 to 200 milligrams twice per day. And then that can be gradually increased to a maximum daily dose of 1,200 milligrams. And thankfully, it's, it's actually quite efficacious. So I've seen numbers like 90% of patients will have effective pain control, and I've seen a number needed to treat of, of actually less than two. Okay, well, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, so I mean, it works well, but the problem with it is that there are side effects. The main side effects here being lethargy, drowsiness, diplopia, GI symptoms are common, hyponatremia. A lot of patients may not be able to tolerate it because of those adverse effects. There's also oxcarbazepine, which is supposed to have similar efficacy as carbamazepine with less side effects. So that could be tried as well. Now, what about other medications that we normally use to treat neuropathic pain or try to treat neuropathic pain like gabapentin or pregabalin? So it would make sense that they should work, right? Because they normally do work for neuropathic pain, but there's really no evidence that they're effective at all. And I should mention anecdotally as well, I've seen a lot of patients coming in, you know, they've been prescribed pregabalin for, you know, that that episodic facial pain that sounds neuropathic and they just haven't had any success with it. So when you're working in the emergency department, if you see a patient in that context, are you starting a patient you suspect has trigeminal neuralgia on carbamazepine? So this is something that I've learned since reading up on it. And initially, I wasn't starting patients on carbamazepine. 
And it really came down to the fact that I'm just not comfortable prescribing carbamazepine. It's not a medication that I usually start someone on. So at first, I wouldn't give it. And then I'd tell the patient, look, I think you probably have trigeminal neuralgia. I'd prescribe them some analgesia and then have them follow up with their family doctor and say, you know, I think your family doctor could maybe try you on carbamazepine if they agree with the diagnosis. But then I realized that their family doctor is probably just as uncomfortable giving carbamazepine as I am. I mean, you know, I'm a family doctor as well. And when I did family medicine, I certainly wasn't prescribing carbamazepine all the time. I'd be re-prescribing it, but I wouldn't really be starting patients on it. And the more I read up on trigeminal neuralgia and, and realized how effective the treatment is, I've changed my practice. And if I'm suspecting someone has trigeminal neuralgia, I'm prescribing carbamazepine from the ED because it's just going to give them so much relief, you know, and I think it'd be almost cruel not to do that. And I often send a little note to their GP saying, look, look, I started them on carbamazepine for suspected trigeminal neuralgia. If you don't mind seeing them, you know, in, in follow up, and then they're probably going to need their dose titrated up. Well, I'm sure they appreciate that because sometimes it can be weeks to get a family doctor's appointment. So you're hopefully saving them some weeks of pain. Now, what happens if the medical treatment isn't cutting it for the patient? Are there any surgical options? Yeah, there are. So surgical interventions are a possibility. They're usually reserved for patients who have minimal relief with, you know, appropriate medical management or the medical management, they're having too much adverse effects from it. So there are several options, but the most common one that is used now is this microvascular decompression where they identify the culprit vessel that's, you know, compressing the trigeminal nerve, and then they can sort of like move it out of the way, and then they put a little sponge in between the two so it's not compressing the trigeminal nerve anymore. I think we've pretty well covered trigeminal neuralgia now, but did you have a few little things you wanted to say in conclusion? Recap. Trigeminal neuralgia, it causes this intense, episodic, unilateral facial pain. Sometimes patients might have that persistent pain in the background as well. It's usually caused by vascular compression of the trigeminal nerve root, but probably around 15% of the time, a secondary cause is the culprit, so things like MS or a tumor. MRI is the imaging modality of choice. And treatment is with carbamazepine or oxcarbazepine, and surgical decompression is an option for patients with persistent pain despite medical management. Well, that was really great. Thank you for reminding us about this really distressing disease, and hopefully we'll be able to get some patients some pain relief faster now that we have a better approach. So thanks again, Adrian, and I look forward to talking to you again. It's been a pleasure, Cardi. It always is. Take it easy, Adrian. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward Uh sign-off, number 4,000, complete. Well, actually, it's looking more like 4,230. Great show, guys. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings, all, and welcome back to Rural Medicine. This month, I am joined once again by my former colleague, Eric Quentin, who is now a family physician and emergency physician in Iceland. So welcome back, Eric, and let's hear your case. I was hanging out before my evening shift, and this was in the winter. Uh, my wife, who's also an ER physician, was, was working uh, during that day, and she told me that they just received a dispatch from the helicopter service that they were on the way for an avalanche victim. Information were coming bits by bits, and it seemed that the victim uh, seemed to have been triggered a, a small avalanche and was dragged down a small gully. And then he slid down, and he stopped at this bottom of this, uh, this place, and there was also a waterfall close to it. The victim was a few kilometers away from the road. The SAR teams were fast to arrive with their snowmobiles, but this situation proved to be much more challenging than they anticipated. 
The patient was, was dragged in this small gully, and because of the, the avalanche beacon waves were reflecting on the rocks and walls, they were receiving conflictual signals, and it was really hard to locate the exact location of the victim. But after a while, someone probed the victim, and uh, the victim was under three meters of snow. At that point, the doctor from the helicopter services, uh, my good friend and colleague Bergur, asked the pilot to be uh, winched down because he felt it would make the greatest difference on the ground. So the victim was partially extricated. And it was noticed to be pulselessness. Uh, he seemed to have his airway open. But remember that he, the victim was close to a waterfall and it was just soaked all wet. It took a while to finally uh, dig the victim out completely uh, because he was heads up, feet down, and his keys were stuck in the snow and they had to dig him out completely. There was some wind and as they were digging, just more slush came. The patient was finally extricated. They had to move him down about 10 meters down the slope uh, to start CPR because the extrication site was too tricky for interventions. And to add to the challenge, they were concerned that the vibration from the helicopter would trigger another avalanche. So they had to carry him down 50 meters before to be winched uh, by the helicopter. Once the patient was in the helicopter, the patient was still in the systole. He was set up on a portable device for external cardiac compression, the Lucas. He was intubated in the helicopter and they notified us that they were on the way. In the ER, since we were dispatched before, we were ready. We had called the ECMO team to give them the heads up and the resident was in contact with them. We were two ER consultants, we had two really good ER residents, everyone had their roles. On arrival, the patient was in a systole. He was cold to touch, really wet. There was no signs of trauma otherwise. The EFAS was negative. Esophageal temperature was seeing 23 degrees, which is 73 degrees Fahrenheit and the rectal probe was 30 degrees Celsius, uh, 86 degrees Fahrenheit. So at that point, it's been now two hours from the time we received the dispatch from the EMS service and the patient stayed most of it in the, uh, under the avalanche with possible drowning. The Venus guy showed a pH of 6.6, .6, a potassium of 17, glucose of 2. That's 36 in milligrams per deciliter. Bicarbonates of 4, a lactate of 23. He was getting the treatment for the hyperkalemia, calcium gluconate, insulin, dextrose, some fluid, adrenaline, and every pulse check he was in a systole, no cardiac activity on the ultrasound, and the art line just showed a flat line. At this point, Vanessa, I was wondering, what would you do? Would you stop? Because it's an avalanche victim, anything else you would do differently? Because it's a young victim, anything else? Well, I mean, there's always that thing ringing in my head where you can't be cold and dead until you're warm and dead, so there is that. I mean, the time is concerning, even if his airway's open, the amount of time that he's been down. Even if you were able to get ROSC, I'd be concerned about his neurologic outcome. I would definitely be calling a friend. It sounds like you had friends already with you in the ER, but I would definitely be calling either an ICU specialist or intensivist in some category. And I would be talking to the rest of my team as well and making sure that there's nothing that we've forgotten. Before we get the answer, let's just go and get some background. When people think of avalanches, of course, they think about ski resorts, and uh, they're right. But avalanches can happen in many places, such as roads and villages. For, for people who are caught in an avalanche, some studies from Canada that says that there's a 77% survival rate at 10 minutes, but this goes down to 7% at 35 minutes. So when it comes to resuscitation, the avalanche victim, there are two big categories of patients. The first group of patients are those that will die in the first 35 minutes from asphyxia or major trauma. And at that point, it's really a race against the clock to find these victims and extract them. 
There had been no reported survival of someone who's been buried more than 35 minutes with a packed airway. And like I said earlier, in the epidemiologic studies, there's a huge drop of mortality in the first half hour. The second group of patients are those with hypothermia. So this will be the one would have an airway that is intact, that is open, that have had some air pockets, and then they will kind of like cool down slowly until they have a cardiac arrest. We know from case studies that the rate of cooling, that maximum rate of cooling is about nine degrees, nine to 10 degrees, degrees Celsius per hour. So in 35 minutes, someone can cool down to a critical point and then they can have a cardiac arrest. And these patients will behave much more differently because a patient in cardiac arrest with severe hypothermia or cardiac instability is a candidate for ECMO. And these are associated with really good outcome when they're put on the machine. Okay, so a quick recap here. There's sort of two types of patients. We've got those who are either victims of asphyxia or a massive trauma. So we're really racing against the clock to find them and get them out. And then we're looking at the other group, which are really the hypothermic ones who are much likely to be more salvageable depending on the time that they've been under and because ECMO and other options might be more viable in these folks. Now, before we move on to sort of the management of these patients, we have to keep a few things in mind. And those are the, some of the prognostic factors, which can really help us make a decision about which sort of treatment algorithm we are going to follow. So why don't you go over those for us, Eric? The main decision of prognostic factors in avalanche victim is the duration of the burial, the initial temperature when we get the victim, is the airway open or not? Like, is it packed with snow? Does they have like, does the victim have an uh, airway pocket? And also, for the hospital, it's going to be the potassium level. And this is why I really like the algorithm from the European Resuscitation Committee because they they factor all of this and they put this into a nice and easy uh, algorithm for us. So why don't we go over it? The first step of this algorithm is just to assess if there's obvious lethal injury or if the whole body is frozen. That would be uh, an indication to stop CPR. The next would be then the duration of the burial. If, the, if it's been less than 60 minutes and the core temperature is more than 30 degrees, 86 Fahrenheit, then they recommend just to do the standard ALS because this patient probably died of something else, not of hypothermia. They might have died of the trauma or the asphyxia. But if it's been more than 60 minutes and the core temperature is less than 30 degrees, now they say to look for signs of life and they recommend to check for a pulse or if the patient breathes for about a minute. If there are signs of life, then we have a patient with severe hypothermia who's alive and then we need to rearm this patient. And, and the indications for going into ECMO would be if the, there's any cardiac instability or if the temperature is less than 28 degrees. If these two things are there, we should go into ECMO. If there are no signs of life, then we should start CPR. And this is where also where the rhythm helps us as a prognostic factor. If it's a PA, a VFib, a VTAC, they say that we should continue CPR and bring the patient to a, a, an ECMO facility if available. If the patient is in a systole, then the prognosis is dark. And now we have to check if the airway is open or was packed with snow. If the airway was packed with snow, and now it's been 60 minutes that the patient was under the avalanche, they recommend stopping CPR, because at this point the prognosis is extremely bad. But if it was in a systole and the airway was open, like our patient, now we have to check the potassium level. I just need to drop in here and say, since the recording of this story, the European Resuscitation Council has published new guidelines on the management of avalanche victims. And now, instead of the potassium only, they use the HOPE score for prognostication. And we are going to clarify more about that HOPE score later on in the show. 
So Vanessa, I was thinking, why don't we just go over this algorithm together? Okay, that sounds good. So if we go back over the case, so I guess the first step, the patient didn't have any obvious lethal injuries from what your descriptions were. And the duration of their burial in the avalanche was more than 60 minutes, and they had no signs of life. CPR had been started, and the rhythm had showed asystole. They had a patent airway, but there was likely some possible drowning component here because of this waterfall that was so close to them, because you mentioned that the patient was soaking wet, which isn't usual necessarily in an avalanche when it should be cold snow. But their potassium was 17. So it seems like this algorithm would lead us to the consideration of stopping CPR. Yes. Exactly. This is what we did at the end. We felt like we gave the best treatment for this patient. We treated his, his hyperkalemia because he was young, because it was an avalanche victim. We decided to give him another round of CPR and, and adrenaline. But at the end, we know that a potassium like this, there's been no reported case in the literature that someone survived a, an avalanche uh, with a potassium more than eight and with a potassium of 17, that was really, really bad prognosis for him. Yeah, this is a really sad outcome for this case, but I think it points out a really interesting learning opportunity because of these different branch points on the algorithm that you mentioned, you know, whether it's been how long they've been under the avalanche, their temperature and the potassium. It's, these are all good ways for us to sort of check in with ourselves and say, okay, should we be considering to stop CPR now? Should we keep going now? Those are great tips. Now, anything different in terms of medications or defibrillation or airway management when you're dealing with an avalanche victim? The challenge with avalanches is that, are we dealing with an hypothermia patient? Are we dealing with an asphyxia patient? Or are we dealing with a trauma patient? Okay, so this is where it becomes more subtle. So if we think that someone died of hypoxia or asphyxia, then we would just do the standard ACLS algorithm. But when it becomes a bit more specific, if, it's a, if we think that the patient is having a cardiac arrest from the hypothermia in the avalanche. So a couple of differences. For the CPR, they recommend checking a pulse and, and breathing for up to a minute, which is different than the, the, the 10 second recommendation that we usually do. Also regarding CPR, this should be started as early as possible. They also recommend that we can use mechanical chest compression to free some hands. And also in, I think in the pre-hospital, it's, it's a really wise use. And also they talk about something called intermittent resuscitation. So that means in cases of confirmed or suspected severe hypothermia, it is acceptable to interrupt CPR for less than five minutes to do something else. So let's say we have to extricate the patient, we have to move the patient, we have to winch them with the helicopter. We shouldn't be hands off for more than five minutes. And then we should resume the CPR for more than five minutes. In terms of the airway management, business as usual. Regarding defibrillation, uh, let's just uh, agree that there's some disagreement between the European societies and the American. Some say that we should defibrillate every two minutes like usual, and some say that we should do about three shocks until the, there's a temperature of 30 degrees, and then we should resume the defibrillation as, as normal. The rationale is that a really cold art is refractory to shock and severe hypothermia, and also the evidence is limited. So what I would do in these cases, I would just limit myself to three shocks until we reach a 30 degrees Celsius. Because anyway, we have so many other things to do at that point, and I think we should really focus on ruling out any other causes and rewarming the patient. Same thing with adrenaline. There's a lot of disagreement between the, the two large societies. Uh, the European says not to give any adrenaline until the patient is at 30 degrees. The American says uh, max of three doses until we've reached uh, 30 degrees. 
So there's limited evidence. At that point, I would probably just throw one or two doses and then kind of like try to forget about the adrenaline until we reach 30 degrees. So on the field, the biggest priority is just to avoid further cooling. And the, one of the best way we have for this is what we call the burrito wrap, which is basically wrapping the patient in multiple layers. So starting with the heat pads close to the patient, uh, and then you put some sort of like foil as a vapor barrier, you put some blanket, and then you finish the large wrap with like a big tarp. And usually the organized SAR teams, they usually have this equipment with them on a rescue. Talking about that, Mel and Dr. Doug Brown covered hypothermia in January 2014 on MRAP. And you should really go back and listen to that for further discussion of this because it's very useful and you know, very um, comprehensive. The highlights from that really are you know, use warm IV fluids when you can have access to them. Keep the patient in a warm area because you obviously, as you said, want to make sure that they don't get even more cold. Active external rewarming is when you use a warm blanket or forced heat over the patient. And then the active internal rewarming is things like thoracic lavage and peritoneal lavage, which are obviously not something you're going to be doing on the side of a mountain. But um, when you get into the emergency department, you might have these as options. Eric, you mentioned a few times ECMO, and not all of us out here have access to ECMO. But why don't you go over some of the uses for ECMO in these patients? So ECMO treatment is definitely associated with a good prognosis and severe hypothermia cases. And there's some very interesting uh, case series of patients being very, very cold, down to 14 degrees Celsius, surviving after ECMO. For avalanche victims, though, the data, I would say, are not as optimistic. It's probably because it's like sometimes it's a mix of like drowning, asphyxia and trauma and not only like a pure hypothermia cases. And we have studies from Japan and Australia showing that the survival is limited in patients in cardiac arrest going into ECMO. If you have any doubt, of course, you should always discuss with your local ECMO team or your local ER. And it's good to have this discussion with the cardiothoracic uh, surgeon. The indication for ECMO in avalanche patients is you really to find the smaller group of patients that we rule out the asphyxia, the trauma, and then that we're pretty confident that they die of a cardiac arrest because they've been cooling down slowly. Okay, so now we're going to look at the serum potassium levels. And it's in these avalanche patients where potassium really becomes a very important marker. Obviously, it's an important marker in lots of patients, but this can be one of those critical decision points. So we have some studies supporting that the highest admission serum potassium of an avalanche victim was 6.4, and that a cutoff under 7 millimoles per liter might be actually a good prognostic factor. So that is not a very high potassium level for someone who obviously survived the emergency department resuscitation and ended up being admitted. All in all, the higher the potassium, the worse the prognosis, which isn't surprising because it really kind of shows how dead the victim is. There's also been no shown survival for avalanche victims in which their first potassium level was above 8, including patients who received ECMO. And for true hypothermia, that line is now drawn at 12 millimoles per liter. But for the avalanche, 8 is still one place where you can consider stopping because there are so many other factors going on. They had the hypothermia, but they've also got the possibility of the trauma and the asphyxia. Like I mentioned earlier, the European Resuscitation Council now suggests that we use the HOPE score for prognostication in avalanche victims, instead of potassium only. So now, Eric, why don't you talk to us a little bit more about that? What they realize with time is that the potassium alone is not as reliable as previously thought. A group of researchers then tried to identify who would survive ECMO and hypothermia, and they came up with the HOPE score, or the Hypothermia Outcome Prediction After ECLS. They have a website where you can calculate it. You need internet access, of course, and we'll put the link in the show notes. It is a composite score where you enter the age, the gender, 
was there any asphyxia or not, the CPR duration, the serum potassium, and the initial temperature. Once you enter the patient's data, it gives you a percentage of survival. A score of 5, for example, means that there's a 5% survival chance. And they drew the line at 10%. More than 10%, it's a go for ECMO. Less than 10%, they recommend not to go for ECMO in these hypothermic patients. As a side note, the score is less reliable in children, as some kids have survived with a score less than 10%. And they also recommend to take this with a grain of salt in avalanches since it hasn't been studied well. So for avalanche victims, even though they recommend using the score, it is not 100% proven. And what I would recommend is just to discuss with your regional ECMO team. My opinion is that potassium still has some role since not everyone knows about the HOPE score and we actually don't have much data in avalanche victims. Second, if you don't have access to internet, potassium only can be used as a predictor. And the ERC now recommends a potassium level of 7 as a cutoff to consider stopping CPR. I would like to close by saluting the SARS team who I think play an immense role in avalanche cases. As we said, we're racing against time and big, organized, well-trained SARS teams, they can make a difference. I couldn't agree more. We often talk about how first responders have to secure the scene before they put themselves at risk to go and get the patient. But it's really hard to secure the scene when you're on the side of a mountain and there are potentially other avalanches that could come and get you as well. So Definitely hats off to all of those search and rescue volunteers and employees. They do an amazing job. So how about you give us a little quick summary of the key points here? So keep in mind that the three main causes of death and avalanche is hypoxia, trauma, and hypothermia. We're really running against the clock. We really want to be quick on finding the patient who's under the avalanche, assessing and removing any snow, if they have any snow in their airway. As the doctor who's going to receive the patient in the ER, what we want to know is the duration of the burial. We want to know the temperature. Was the airway open? Is there a pulse? And then we want to get like a, a potassium level just to stratify this patient. And where we can really make a difference is really to find these patients who had their airway open that did not die of asphyxia or trauma and that they went into cardiac arrest for hypothermia and then we can salvage them with ECMO algorithm as well. We're going to include a link to that in the show notes. So if you're working in a place that's avalanche prone or might be a referral center, then it'd be good to have this available. Thank you so much for all your work on this and um, look forward to chatting to you again soon. Yes, well, it was my pleasure. Bye. PCMA, PCMA, PCM all the way. Oh, what fun it is to appraise 10 more papers today. Woo! Oh, yeah. That's right. Chicka, 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 chicka. Primary Care Medical Abstracts. With Ken and Steve. Doobie doobie. Hey, welcome to the December episode of PCMA. I'm Ken Milne, and joining me for this December episode is Steve Brown. Hey, have you heard Heidi and Cardi call this Steve and Ken and the Ten? <laughs> no. That's what they're calling it now, yeah. Oh, it's getting branded. I like <laughs> it. Super. Yeah, and I don't know if we're going to be able to top your Christmas Carol opener. Oh, <laughs> well, it's a low bar because I cannot sing. But just because I can't sing 
doesn't mean I won't sing. But I'm in the holiday spirit. I love this time of year where people get together, families come together. I mean, I like the warm fuzzies. And what better time to listen to us appraise 10 papers? Exactly. Set that aside for your December schedule and say, you know what I'm going to do, family? Just give me an hour. I'm just going to hang out with Steve and Ken and their top 10. Paper one. Well, let's get started on those 10. So the first one is from my pick, and this is Comparative Effectiveness of Aspirin Dosing in Cardiovascular Disease, New England Journal of Medicine 2021. And I started this month's episode with a less is more paper. So already you know my bias. The purpose of this trial was to assess whether taking 325 milligrams of aspirin per day would result in a lower risk for a composite outcome compared to the 81 milligram per day dose, so the low dose. It was multi-center, open-label, pragmatic, randomized control trial, and they included adults with established atherosclerosis cardiovascular disease. So these would be considered higher-risk patients. The patients were randomized one-to-one, so it wasn't a one-to-two or one-to-three block randomization, just one-to-one, 325 or 81 The primary outcome was that time to the first occurrence of any one of the composite outcomes. And they were death from any cause, fairly objective, casting a big net, hospitalization for an MI, or hospitalization for a stroke. They had a number of secondary outcomes that were included, and it looked at the individual components of the composite outcome. The safety outcome, as you probably guessed, was, hey, did they bleed? And they defined that as a hospitalization for a major bleed requiring blood products. They got 15,000 plus patients enrolled and underwent randomization. The demographics on these patients were they were 69 years of age, two-thirds were male, one-third had a previous MI, and just over half had previous coronary revascularization, and 96, so vast majority, were already taking aspirin. Now, when you looked at the study, 42%, so almost half the patients in the high dose, 325 group, switched to the lower dose. That's the pragmatic aspect of this trial. And only 7% who were at 81 milligrams switched teams and went to the high dose. But what was their outcome? No statistical difference in their composite outcome. And really tight. It was 7.3% versus 7.5%. So a hazard ratio of 1.02, a 0.2% absolute difference with that 95% confidence interval that spanned the line of no difference. And how about the safety for bleeds? No statistical difference on those either. So there doesn't appear to be a superiority in taking that 325 milligram aspirin dose compared to the low dose 81 milligrams of aspirin in a patient who has known cardiovascular disease. I think it would have been a more robust trial if everyone was blinded to group allocation And the median length of follow-up was kind of short, just over two years. And for something that's a chronic condition and you're looking for preventing heart attacks and strokes, it would have been nice to see a longer follow-up period. And of course, more than a third of patients in the high-dose group switched teams and went to the lower-dose group in this pragmatic trial. Yeah, I wonder with the crossover, I mean, if there was a benefit to 325, it would have been very suppressed by the fact that a third of the people switched. And as you mentioned, it's open label. So I wonder if this doesn't actually answer the question that we want to know. Yeah, like we really want to know, is there some kind of superiority? At this point, we have to accept the null based on the information we have from this trial. 
because it doesn't support the higher risk. But like you're saying, there are so many limitations to this, we can't say that it doesn't work. And that's an important distinction in epistemology and burden of claim sort of stuff. So I would agree with you on that. I'd also like to acknowledge that I have a bias because I'm taking the 81 milligram dose. And they talked about how this was like a groundbreaking new way of doing research. They had this, they call this engagement of patient partners. They talked about how they enrolled patients. It was reducing the burden of the research on patients. And so I wonder if that's what sort of the pragmatic was and maybe just sort of like fumbled the whole research question here a little bit. And super important distinction, this is for secondary prevention. So we've talked a lot about primary prevention. And our colleague and friend who's on right on Prime, Jake Anderson, says, aspirin for primary prevention, lose my number. <laughs> lose my number. <laughs> yeah, I agree with what you're saying there, Steve, and it's unfortunate, but there are advantages to doing pragmatic designs. But of course, there's no free lunch, right? It comes with a cost. It comes with limitations. And so that's where this becomes so important is to have critical appraisal and understand how to put it in context. Bottom line. There appears to be no patient-oriented benefit of a higher-dose aspirin in patients with established cardiovascular disease. Paper two. Paper number two is sodium glucose co-transport protein 2, SGLT2 inhibitors, and glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1 receptor agonists for type 2 diabetes, systematic review and network meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. It's in BMJ, January 2021. And, you know, diabetes management is the cornerstone of primary care office practice. And actually, I think we've saved you, the listeners, from a lot of these papers, which have been, like, unbelievable in their volume, which you'll hear in a second. But I think that these two classes of medications have changed diabetes management more than anything else I've seen in at least a decade. And since 2019, the GLPs and SGLT2s have been widely recommended as an option after metformin in guidelines around the world. And if it feels like there's been a lot of studies on these medicines, that's because there have. Many of these randomized controlled trials have shown improvement with patient-oriented outcomes, not just A1C improvements, which is why this is so groundbreaking. So you know that GLP-1 agonists include dulaglutide, exenatide, semaglutide, and SGLT2 inhibitors include canagliflozin, dipagliflozin, and empagliflozin. So you've got tides flowing. Tides exactly. Tides and flowing. Tides and flows. These authors performed a network meta-analysis to evaluate SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists in patients with type 2 diabetes at varying cardiovascular and renal risk. They searched appropriate databases up to August 2020 to find RCTs with follow-up of at least 24 weeks. The studies were independently assessed by two reviewers and assessed for risk of bias. They use grade to assess evidence certainty and divided patients up into risk from very low to very high, and they registered the systematic review in Prospero. And Ken, I had heard about a lot of these trials, but I cannot believe there have been 764 trials, including over 400,000 patients. Yeah, I think only COVID has been studied more than this. Right, exactly. And all the trials studied addition of SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists to adding to existing diabetes treatment. So what are the results? Both classes of drugs lowered 
all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, non-fatal myocardial infarction, and kidney failure, high certainty evidence. There are no other diabetes meds that do this. There were a couple differences. SGLT2 inhibitors reduce mortality and admission to hospital for heart failure more than GLP-1 receptor agonist. GLP-1 receptor agonist reduced non-fatal stroke more than the SGLT2s. The SGLT2 inhibitors cause genital infection with high certainty. We know this, the flozins, they lead to more glucose in your urinary flow. So you're definitely going to have infections. Fournier's gangrene. Yeah, exactly. GLP-1 receptor agonists might cause severe gastrointestinal events. That's low certainty. Low certainty evidence that both classes might lower body weight and little or no evidence found for either meds for limb amputations, blindness, eye disease, neuropathic pain, or health-related quality of life. And of course, the absolute improvement of these medicines varies across patients from low to very high risk of cardiovascular outcomes. The higher the patient risk, the more likely these meds are to help. And there's a really great calculator in the study, and I'll put it in the show notes, but it's magicevidence.org. And they have a calculator, for example, if you have a 1,000 patients with diabetes and cardiovascular disease with usual care in five years, 120 per 1,000 would die. If you add SGLT2s, then 16 fewer would die in those five years. That's a number needed to treat of 63. So we have not seen evidence like this for diabetes in decades, if ever. I'm a late adopter. I'm especially skeptical of expensive medicines and drug company-founded studies. And I was one of the last in my office to change my practice on these meds. But I've started to prescribe these medicines in our office. Well, Steve, you know that I tend to be, you know, skeptical by nature. So some of the limitations to this study were... It's a network meta-analysis, so that's always difficult, not comparing A to B. You're comparing A to B and then B to C and A to C. So, you know, some network meta-analysis things come up. Also, you know, why the large number of trials? You know, 764, 400,000 patients. If it worked really well with high confidence, don't you just need a few trials with a fewer patients and a large effect size? So I'm not exactly sure why we needed this tsunami of studies. The blinding was an issue in 40% of the included trials. So why not just get rid of those ones, right? And avoid the garbage in, garbage out. And just meta-analyze high-quality studies that involve blinding, right? And then, of course, you mentioned conflicts of interest, which my reflex is they don't negate the findings but should make us more skeptical. Bottom line. SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists improve mortality. Paper three. Abstract number three is pharmacological blood pressure lowering for primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease across different levels of blood pressure an individual patient level data meta-analysis in the Lancet of this year. Now, another month and another paper on blood pressure lowering. I'm just wondering, at what point, Steve, will you be going, geez, I wish Ken would just pick another paper on acupuncture. Have we reached that level yet? <laughs> well, no? yeah, you and I are going to be retired before anybody knows what the actual goal blood pressure is. <laughs> <laughs> well, the aim of this study was to determine the effects of blood pressure lowering treatment on the risk of major cardiovascular events by baseline levels of systolic blood pressure. 
So they got 48 randomized control trials of blood pressure medications, and they compared it to a placebo, an active control, and they had to have at least 1,000 person years of follow-up to be included in this systematic review. Now, they excluded patients with heart failure, acute MI, or other acute settings, and the primary outcome was that composite outcome of MACE, fatal and non-fatal strokes, fatal and non-fatal MIs, or ischemic heart disease, or heart failure causing death or requiring hospitalization, or paronychia. No, I just made up that last <laughs> one. That was just to point out that when you go through a list of composite outcomes, right, you know, I might like to have a fatal stroke than a severely disabling stroke. Like there's a difference there, right? And there's a difference between having heart failure causing death bad or I got admitted with heart failure, you know? So I'm just trying to point out these things are not all equal. They subdivided patients with previous cardiovascular disease because this was primary and secondary and previous cardiovascular disease was one in five or about 20%. The mean age of patients in this systematic review was 65 years of age, and there were more male participants. Their median follow-up time was just over four years, and in that four years, 12% had at least one major cardiovascular event. The hazard ratio associated with the reduction of a systolic blood pressure by 5 millimeters of mercury for a MACE event was 0.91%. For patients without previous cardiovascular disease, so primary, and 0.89 hazard ratio for if you had previous cardiovascular disease or secondary outcome. So what this study is really reporting is that for every five millimeters of mercury lowering the systolic blood pressure, it's associated with a 10% relative decrease in a MACE event, a composite outcome. Now there are limitations with this study that threaten its validity. They did not clearly describe how they selected the studies to be included. They didn't provide details on assessing risk of bias. They did exclude patients with heart failure, so we should be cautious applying that data to those patients. But here's the big one. Harm was not even considered. And I don't know how you can talk about recommending a therapy or an intervention when all you look at is one side of the balance sheet. They didn't even consider it. And this is a potential problem because you and I know that there's a J curve to lowering blood pressure, right? You know, and it's like, how low can you go? How low can you go? Because once you get too low, they fall down, they go boom, they hit their head, they break a hip, you know, hypotension becomes a problem. And when you break down the composite outcome, there was no difference in all-cause mortality. So we're not talking about life and death here. That didn't drive the composite outcome because there was no difference in that individual component. And there is another systematic review that showed blood pressure lowering strategy based on cardiovascular risk, not what their baseline blood pressure is, is more effective than one based on blood pressure alone. And I'll put a link in the show notes to that study. And I think the authors overinterpret their findings by suggesting guidelines should be changed without documenting the potential harms. Yeah, these authors went crazy with their conclusions. They suggested not only is there not a J-shaped curve with blood pressure management, they use those specific words, but also that really they suggest a paradigm shift. It's your risk is more important than what your blood pressure is. So that's similar to like what we do for cholesterol, right? We do a calculation similar to what we do for osteoporosis. The person's risk is much more important. So I think they're implying that someone at high risk, even let's say with normal blood pressure, 120, should be on a medicine, 
for blood pressure. With a systolic blood pressure of 75 now. Right, exactly. And their get up and go has got up and left and their quality of life is crap and they fall and, uh, you know, no. I think it's really provocative though. I really like this paper because it actually did make me think about a paradigm shift that the risk is more important. One of my big hangups about this study is that it wasn't clear to me what medicines were used in the trials. So like, was it some medicines helped and some medicines didn't? Is it all meds? Is it a blood pressure effect? Is it like cholesterol where there's some like anti-inflammatory or other effect regardless of, you know, lowering blood pressure? So that was the confusing part to me. Yeah, no, and I, I hear what you're saying. And if you're using beta blockers, you've got to worry about bradycardia and postural and those types of things. So again, I think the authors overinterpreted their findings. I don't question their findings. I just, you know, think that you need to consider harm and then overinterpreting, suggesting, well, not just suggesting, I think they're a bit more forceful in what they recommended than I would have, so. Bottom line. High-risk patients are generally more high-risk than low-risk patients. But we should manage patients' blood pressures on an individual basis using shared decision-making about the potential harms and potential benefits. Paper four. Paper number four, frequency of administration of standardized screening questions in federally qualified health centers is from JAMA Internal Med, September 2021. This is another article in the brilliant Less is More series in JAMA Internal Medicine. So if you feel somewhat overwhelmed by how many screening surveys you're supposed to do at each office visit, you are not alone. In our office, the medical assistants do many of these. Thank goodness. Thank you to our medical assistants. But it has definitely increased the burden on them. There's lots of other things they could be doing in that time. And it's slowed down the process for a patient to get in the room. And some of these surveys have been shown to be beneficial, like the PHQ-2, smoking screens, and some of them are now tied to performance incentives and even financial rewards for meeting screening questionnaire metrics. So you might wonder, is this gotten out of hand? Are we screening too much? And so these authors, I thought, did a really clever thing to answer this question in a retrospective survey of medical records of patients at 24 federally qualified health centers they looked at six screening questionnaires that will be near and dear to you and were chosen because of their ties to required metrics. Depression screen, PHQ-2, anxiety, the GAD-2, health literacy, preferred learning style, tobacco use, and passive smoke exposure. And they considered questionnaires to be excessive if they were done more often than the recommended frequency. Most of them were annual but things like learning style and health literacy, one screen is considered enough. So what are the results? They looked at 6 million screening questionnaires and 35% of them were considered excessive. The most over-questioned area was tobacco use and PHQ-2. About half of these screenings were excessive. And so the authors say that these FQHCs are doing a, quote, high volume of low volume activity. And this is likely an unintended consequence of implementing performance measures. None of us have enough time. And while some of these health questionnaires might improve outcomes, if you have appropriate follow-up in place, we're definitely burdening ourselves with more barriers to efficiency. And this can 
doesn't even include other screens that I've seen used, like fall risk, opiate use disorder, and domestic violence, to name a few. So this problem is actually probably even worse than this article says it is. Oh, it's worse. It's worse. Bottom line. Many of our patient screening questionnaires are being repeated unnecessarily. Paper five. Abstract number five is effect of high frequency, that's 10 kilohertz, spinal cord stimulation in patients with painful diabetic neuropathy, a randomized clinical trial in JAMA 2021. What do you think? Do you think this was my favorite article of the month? I think it might be your favorite to critically appraise. Yeah, thanks for turning it into a positive. (laughs) (laughs) The goal of this study was to see if spinal cord stimulation, or SCS, improves diabetic patients' refractory neuropathy. So it was a prospective multi-center, open-label, randomized control trial comparing this implantable device functioning at 10 kilohertz to usual care. And to be a patient in this study, you had to have diabetic neuropathy, you had to have at least 5 out of 10 pain, it had to be going on for at least a year, and refractory to gabapentinoids and at least one other analgesic. They excluded patients with BMIs greater than 45. You had to have a hemoglobin A1C of less than 10% and a daily morphine equivalence of less than 120 milligrams. So that's who got into the study. Who were they? The mean age was 61 years of age, 63% were male, and the median duration of neuropathy was 11 years, and the mean visual analog scale for pain was seven out of 10. Their primary outcome was to see if we could decrease by 50% at least at six months. And so that's a fairly big drop because if you're starting at seven, 50% is 3.5 or 35 millimeters on a 100 millimeter. So that's beyond that 13 sort of threshold that's clinically significant. But here were the numbers. 5% achieved this in the control group. 79% in the implantable device. So that gives you a difference of 74%. A number needed to treat of one, really, because we don't do part numbers, right? What in medicine has a number needed to treat of one? This is the too good to be true. Now, at least they looked at adverse events. And in the control groups, it was a nice round number, zero. And in the implantable device, it was 18 adverse events. 14 patients had them, so that was 15% of the cohort. Two of these implantable devices got infected and needed to be replaced. So this study was designed, funded, and conducted by the manufacturer of the device. They were also involved in the preparation, review, and approval of the manuscript, and decision to submit it for publication. Multiple authors were employees of the company. None of this makes the data wrong, but boy, our skeptical radar should be going. The big limitation in this study is the lack of blinding. We know that the placebo effect is real and powerful, and the more invasive the treatment, the larger the impact on a subjective outcome like pain. They claim that it was impossible to blind participants, but they could have implanted a sham device I mean, we have sham cardiovascular surgeries where they will go in and not stent them. And in the other patients, stent them. We have arthroscopic studies, surgical studies, where they will flush out the evil humors, right, with some normal saline and trim up some menisci and stuff like that, and do a sham surgery and look at that. 
And by the way, it showed no difference in their outcome. And Jeannie Lenzer has written a, a really good book on this called The Danger Within Us, America's Untested, Unregulated Medical Device Industry and One Man's Battle to Survive It. Yeah, so my exact thought, just like you, was TGTBT, too good to be true. And you wonder, because you know they submitted this to the New England Journal of Medicine, and New England <laughs> Journal of Medicine was like, TGTBT, and then you know they submitted it to JAMA, and JAMA's like, nope, too good to be true. And they got it into JAMA Neurology, but I completely agree with you. Not only are a lot of them employees, but the ones that aren't employees have received personal fees from the maker of the stimulator. And when you look at the procedure, it's pretty elaborate. They put these little electrodes in. They do like a trial where you put the electrodes in with like a more temporary device for seven days. And if it helps, then they put in the permanent device. So I guess not totally throwing this out the window, would you ever consider this for a patient? Because these patients were pretty miserable. You know, there's seven out of 10 neuropathic pain for over a year that's resistant to everything else you've done. Would you share a decision and try this for a patient? Or do you think it's not even at that level? No, I wouldn't. I think that this is an example of intervention bias and an argument from emotion, right? Because they're so sick, we have to do something. But we know that the way that these implantable devices are regulated in the United States with the FDA, it is a really low bar. And we've had experiences with implantable devices for people with seizures and their vagal stimulators and just horrific sort of stories coming out of that. So I would need, before I implant something into somebody's body and recommend an implanting something into somebody's body, you know, all the adverse events that went with it. And if I know that it is most likely a placebo effect that's being leveraged, there's some ethical concerns about deceiving a patient with regards to that. So I don't think that the threshold has been met for me to clinically recommend this. Bottom line. Do not recommend patients with diabetic neuropathy to get an implantable spinal cord stimulation device until we have better evidence. Paper six. Paper number six is, again, one of the ones where I'm like, wow, these people are so clever that they thought of doing this study. The catastrophization effects of an MRI report on the patient and surgeon and the benefits of clinical reporting results from a randomized controlled trial and blinded trials. European Spine Journal. July 2021. So how does an MRI report and the way it's written impact a patient's impression and well-being? And does it impact the doctor and how the doctor feels about the patient's health? Low back pain is common. Imaging is overused. Unnecessary imaging leads to unnecessary surgery. The intro of this article says MRI utilization accounts for 22% of the variability in spine surgery rates, more than twice any patient characteristic. So it doesn't matter what the patient characteristics are. The fact that you order an MRI is more important in the likelihood of the patient getting a spine surgery than anything else. And nobody has studied whether the language in a report impacts how a patient feels about their health. And we've all read these reports and they had some great words in here, like MRI reports have scary words like herniated disc, degenerative disc, canal compromise, or my favorite was toxic annular tear. And patients have access to these reports now and they look things up and they wrote a term in here that I'd never heard of before, cyberchondria. 
when patients look things up and get scared. So the study was three phases. Phase one was 44 patients. They compared patient outcomes with the doctor just told them, oh, you have a normal MRI versus describing all the findings in the normal MRI. Like you have a grade one herniated disc with canal compromise and so on. Then they looked for catastrophizing words in MRI reports and developed a more clinical way of describing findings. And then they showed the different reports to clinicians to see if they thought the patient was sicker or more likely to need surgery based on the language in the MRI report compared to the more clinical way of describing. So what are the results? After six weeks of treatments, the patients with the full MRI report had a more negative perception of their spinal condition, increased catastrophization, decreased pain improvement, and poor functional status. And the difference is not only statistically significant, clinically significant, about three points on a 10-point VAS scale. For clinicians, it was a little bit less of a difference, but the alternate method of clinical reporting did have significant benefits in assessment of lesser severity of the disease, shift to lesser severity of the intervention, surgery in three groups of healthcare professionals, orthopedic surgeons, orthopedic residents, and physical therapists. The difference was smaller, more like one point on a 10-point scale. So routine MRI reports produce a negative perception and poor functional outcomes and low back pain. So the authors say focused clinical reporting has significant benefit and calls for clinical reporting rather than image reporting. Words matter. We should avoid scary words on MRI reports. We should implement this immediately. This could make a small but meaningful difference in the outcome in aggregate for pain function and decrease unnecessary interventions. I loved, 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 loved this paper, Steve, and thank you so much for finding it and picking it. I mean, you know that I scour the literature to find really great articles, but I'm so glad that there's two of us doing it because I didn't see this article, and it is my favorite article of the month. And it's all about framing the conversation. And you know that EBM has three pillars. There's the evidence. That's the report, right? The evidence is the report. But we still need to apply our clinical judgment to that report and then engage with the patient with their preferences and values. And if we give patients uninterpreted access to reports, which we can do, which we are doing in my area called my chart, right? I don't think we're giving patients the best care because we need to add our clinical judgment and our filter to help interpret these things that took us years to understand. Sure, there were some limitations to the study and stuff like that, but I don't think I really need to get into that. One of the main points was for MRIs and backs, we have this risk of labeling people that they will carry that label with them. They will have a medical condition, a disability, because they have that toxic or that herniated or you know these really strong words, right? And we don't know the denominator out there. The denominator neglect is huge. Let's just take 44 people off the street, same age, and get an MRI on their back and see how many of them have a herniated disc but don't have any back problems, right? We learned this from plain films in arthritic knees and hips. And so the bottom line for me is let's treat our patients as people and not as imaging studies. Well, and it's really interesting because maybe a spine surgeon knows what toxic annular tear means and can like downplay that in his or her head. But how many of 
in primary care, all our listeners will recognize that patients, they get an MRI, they go see the orthopedic surgeon, but they're still going to come to me, the primary care doctor, and say, doctor, what, what does this mean? What should I do about this? And I don't know if primary care doctors are comfortable with grade one tear and disc. Yeah, no, I agree. And and so, yeah. so it's not only the patient that is going to catastrophize. I think it's the primary care doctor that's going to catastrophize too. It'll nudge them, right? It'll nudge the physicians because we don't have as much information as, like you say, the spinal surgeon, but we have more information than the patient, but the patient has even less. So I think it's an additive effect. And as soon as I read that in the article, and you know, of course, me being me, when I saw the toxic, you know what I thought of? What? Britney Spears video. <laughs> Boom, right in my head. <laughs> right? You know, so that was the first thing I thought of. And I had to actually go up and look up that clinical scenario or that imaging finding when I saw it in the paper because I was not that familiar with it. So you bring up a good point. Bottom line. The words used in MRI reports affect both patient outcomes and pain and change the way clinicians feel about how sick the patient is and how likely the patient is to need an intervention. Paper seven. Abstract number seven is efficacy, acceptability, and safety of muscle relaxants for adults with nonspecific low back pain, a systematic review and meta-analysis in the BMJ 2021. The quest continue, Steve, <laughs> to find something, anything that's effective for managing low back pain. So this study was to determine the efficacy, acceptability, and safety of muscle relaxants. And they followed the PRISMA guidelines for systematic reviews, and they searched the literature for studies to answer the question. And they included studies that had adult patients 18 years of age and older with nonspecific low back pain. The intervention was a muscle relaxant, and the control or the comparison was either a placebo, usual care, a waiting list, or no treatment at all. When they had those inclusion and exclusion criteria, they found 31 trials to include with just over 6,500 patients. And of those 31, 21 of them were non-benzodiazepine studies. And I'm going to focus on those because the other 10 studies had low level of evidence with high risk of bias, and I don't think it provides much information. So looking at those 21... Two weeks or less of a non-benzodiazepine antispasmodic were associated with a reduction in pain intensity compared to the control with a mean of minus 7.7. So that was statistically significant. But not a reduction in disability. That was minus 3.3. And it was based on very low certainty of evidence. Now, non-benzodiazepine antispasmodics might increase the risk of adverse events relative risk 1.6, and might have little to no effect on the acceptability, and that was 0.8. And there, like I said, there wasn't enough information on the other classes of drugs, too small studies and stuff like that. So we still do not have a good treatment strategy for treating low back pain. And this includes non-pharmacologic therapies like physiotherapy, massage therapy, chiropractic, and acupuncture, and pharmacological therapies either for, you know, analgesics like acetaminophen, steroids, NSAIDs. And so I agree with the author that a well-done placebo-controlled trials are needed to address the uncertainty about the efficacy and safety. So glad they identified harm. Safety of muscle relaxants for low back pain to find out what is the net impact on patients. 
Yeah, and it does have a small impact on pain, eight points on a 100-point scale, where we'd say not clinically significant, probably. I joke with our residents that they're just giving their patients central nervous system depressants for back pain. There is such a draw to doing something. So many times I try to tell our residents, you know, just offer reassurance. You don't need to prescribe a medicine. Most back pain will get better by itself. Please don't cause harm by giving them a medicine that is going to have all these side effects and at most is going to make a small difference. Bottom line. Do not routinely prescribe muscle relaxants to manage adult patients with nonspecific low back pain. Paper eight. Paper number eight, six versus 12 hours of single balloon catheter placement with oxytocin administration for labor induction, a randomized control trial, American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, June 2021. So about 10% of family physicians in the U.S. deliver babies. And so they're probably wondering, are there ways to improve induction of labor? About one in four pregnancies in the U.S. is an induced labor. And there have been multiple studies to try to outline a faster time to delivery or to improve maternal and fetal outcomes. And balloon catheters are one induction method. And there have been studies of 12 hours versus 24 hours showing 12 hours helps to speed up delivery. The best current recommendation that I could find says up to 24 hours of balloon catheter insertion. And so this study aimed to evaluate whether women who undergo induction of labor with a single balloon catheter and oxytocin have a shorter time to delivery if you remove the catheter at six hours versus 12 hours, or you plan to. And so the study designed, this is an RCT of 177 women at term. They're both nulliparous and multiparous. Cephalic singletons undergoing induction of labor with a Bishop score of less than six, so that's an unripe cervix and cervical dilatation of less than two centimeters. And they're randomized to planned removal of the catheter at six hours or 12 hours. And the primary outcome was time from catheter insertion to delivery. So what are the results? The insertion to delivery time was much less in the six hour group, 19 versus 24 hours. And the proportion of women delivered by 24 hours was significantly greater in the six hour group 67% versus 47%. Number needed to treat to deliver by 24 hours is five. No increase in the rate of cesarean delivery. And they looked at a variety of maternal and neonatal outcomes. They said there was no difference, although the study was definitely not powered to find those potential harms. For example, the six-hour group had a higher rate of NICU admission, but it was not statistically significant. So seems like the balloon catheter time for cervical ripening keeps decreasing, and six hours seems like a reasonable option. And so one of the biggest threats to the validity of this paper would be the non-blinded nature of the trial. And so having a non-blinded sort of intervention with six hours versus 12 hours, clearly there could be unmeasured confounders that could complicate the interpretation of this data. But Steve, what do you think is driving this rush to induce labor typically? The doctor's schedule. Thank you. So... (laughs) Now, I know they said that it didn't change their C-section rate, which was 25%. Uh, My dad was an obstetrician, and I remember him coming home, and he would be in a foul mood because, well, not foul mood, but he'd be grumpy, let's just put it that way, as the chair of the department, when they would hit the double digits on their C-section rate. 
back in the 80s. You know, and now, I mean, I see studies that are anywhere between 25%, sometimes up to 50% getting C-sections. So the world of obstetrics has really changed. And, you know, the term obstetrician does mean to stand and attend. And, you know, we're, we're in such a rush always. I'm just wondering why. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Bottom line. Pregnant patients undergoing induction of labor with an unfavorable cervix deliver faster with six hours of balloon catheter placement with oxytocin than 12 hours with oxytocin. Paper 9. Abstract number 9 is Interphysician Weight Bias, a Cross-Sectional Observational Study to Guide Implicit Bias Training in the Medical Workplace. And this is in Academic Emergency Medicine 2021. And there are lots of papers published on race and that bias, on age bias, all sorts of different biases, gender bias. But this was one I hadn't really seen before. I mean, we know that there's weight bias towards overweight patients by physicians, and we know that patients have biases towards overweight doctors. So this was really interesting. I really like this idea. It was looking at the weight biases between us, between you and I, Steve, between physicians. And it focused on the kind of bias defined in the common English language, basically stereotyping, right? A particular tendency or trend or inclination, a feeling or opinion, especially one that's preconceived or unreasoned. So what this paper did was they surveyed emergency medicine physicians in the U.S. and Canada for implicit, explicit, and professional weight bias. So implicit bias, that's the unconscious sort of bias that we have, and it's really really subtle type of bias, and it's hard to pinpoint in ourselves, and it's very hard to measure in others. Explicit bias is that more outward expression of bias that's pretty easy to pick up in ourselves and in others based on people's words and actions. And then professional bias is the reduced willingness to collaborate with or seek advice from and foster mutual beneficial professional relationships with our physician's colleagues. And in this study, it's our colleagues with obesity. So they used the implicit association test, and it was used to measure implicit weight bias. The anti-fat attitudes questionnaire was used for explicit weight bias, and then they developed their own tool to look at professional weight bias. And there was a high percentage of participants that had implicit weight bias against other physicians, while other results suggested some explicit and professional weight bias. And I would encourage people to look at the statements that they used for their professional weight bias and see how uncomfortable they make you feel. Now, one of the limitations of this type of research in general is respondent bias, because we went into medical school to help people. We try to minimize our bias. So we've already got, you know, what are they really asking me, right? The other issue is with the professional weight bias tool that they use. This is not a validated instrument. This is something that they created and are looking at validating and would need to be externally validated to other groups besides emergency physicians. But it wouldn't surprise me that other physician groups like primary care physicians may also have some implicit, explicit, and professional weight bias. Yeah, I think this is a really important topic, and I appreciate that the authors did this study, and I think it's important that we all analyze our bias for all the things, but also for obesity and our colleagues. Bottom line. It's important to recognize weight bias exists in the house of medicine and to understand 
how to overcome these biases and to mitigate any negative impacts from them on patient care and physician-to-physician relationships. Paper 10. All right, paper number 10 is a guideline. Guideline review. And spoiler alert, this guideline is going to get my seal of approval for its quality. State seal of approval. So clinical practice guidelines by the Infectious Disease Society of America, American Academy of Neurology, American College of Rheumatology, 2020 guidelines for the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of Lyme disease. We know we need guidance on Lyme disease. It impacts many patients, and we need to know what to do. Most of you know that Lyme disease is present in the Northeast and the Atlantic areas of the United States. It's spreading. In Canada, it can impact people in most provinces. I did not know this, Ken. We are a Lyme center of excellence where I work. Congratulations. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and, and actually, sadly, tick-borne illness patterns are changing with climate change. The black-legged tick or the deer tick or the Ixodes scapularis, the range is expanding. So first, let's talk about the guideline methodology, because on PCMA, we don't just regurgitate the guideline recommendations. We tell you if we think that this guideline is worth paying attention to. And so this guideline had 36 panel members, three patient representatives, one healthcare consumer representative, which is great. I've been on a couple guideline panels, and they're unwieldy as they are, but I don't know, with 36 panel members, that is a beast. They did have a grade expert representative. They had conflict of interest disclosure done. They determined that all panel members were unconflicted. They had evidence summaries from EBM experts at Tufts. This intersected with a systematic review. They gave recommendation gradings as strong or weak. They talked about how it's going to be revised. And they talk about the target audience. And this is maybe one of the reasons why this guideline is a little hard to read because the target is not only for primary care doctors, but also infectious disease specialists, emergency physicians, internists, pediatricians, family physicians, neurologists, rheumatologists, cardiologists, and dermatologists. So they're talking about all aspects of Lyme disease here. It's for ologists. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So any comments on the methodology before I get into a few recommendations, Ken? No, I'll I'll keep my powder dry. Okay, defer. All right, so recommendations. So you should wear protective clothing and wear bug repellent like DEET. I love the discussion of how to remove a tick. Promptly remove attached ticks by mechanical means using clean, fine-tip tweezer inserted between the tick body and the skin. And they don't have, you know, randomized controlled trials on this. So they do a good thing. They say, this is a good practice statement. We're not claiming there's RCTs on how to remove ticks. Another good practice statement is do not burn an attached tick with a match or other heat device or apply noxious chemicals or petroleum products to coax its detachment. And so where I work when I'm doing emergency medicine shifts, during the season, I will get at least one tick a day, one tick a shift. And it really, you know, by the end, I'm ticked off. <laughs> and the, the reason I'm going to say ticked off, it was a little tongue-in-cheek, is because people will pull the tick out, but the head remains buried in. So all they remove is the body. And that's why the good practice thing about how to properly remove the tick is important. And, you know, we are a tick center of excellence. And they make these little devices that sort of 
starts wide and gets narrow so you can get under the head and then lift up directly. They're these little plastic things that we have. And our local campgrounds distributes these to campers. So I don't know how many are removed before I see someone coming in. Yeah. And so another question that you're definitely going to have after you remove the tick or counsel the person how to remove the tick is when to give prophylactic antibiotics. And so it should only be giving to adults and children within 72 hours of removal of an identified high risk tick bite, but not for bites that are equivocal risk or low risk. And this is a strong recommendation based on high quality evidence. And so if you can't classify a tick bite as high risk, then a watch and wait approach is recommended. And it's high risk only if it meets the following three criteria. It has to be an identified Ixodes, that's your deer tick. Yeah, they're these little deer ticks with these little fat engorged bodies, but they're small. They're not the big ones you see. These are small little ticks. Yeah, so get out your little like magnifying glass and identify the deer ticks. It has to be in an endemic area and it has to be attached for more than 36 hours. So all three of those have to be met for prophylactic antibiotics. And if you do that, then single dose doxycycline. And there's a whole bunch of like subspecialty recommendations. I'll just give you a couple examples here. And one of them I'm giving an example because another reason I think this guideline is good is they specifically don't make a recommendation if there's a knowledge gap and they call out the knowledge gap. For example, in patients with Lyme disease-associated facial nerve palsy, no recommendation on the use of corticosteroids in addition to antibiotics. And then they also do address the elephant in the room, which is what about patients with persistent recurring nonspecific symptoms, such as fatigue, pain, cognitive impairment, following treatment for Lyme disease, but no objective evidence of reinfection or treatment failure, they recommend against additional antibiotic therapy, strong recommendations. And then there's a whole bunch of recommendations related to cardiac, neurologic, and rheumatologic conditions. So some of my statements will be based on my preference for reading these types of things. Certainly, I like the fact that it was only nine pages long. Okay, <laughs> but two pages were conflicts of interest of the nine pages. And then they say, and nobody had any material conflicts of interest. Two pages of fine print of a nine-page article. You know, okay. And there was only five references. And you know me, I would like to see the recommendation. And then I'd like to see, you know, they say, okay, for the, let's say the post-exposure prophylaxis giving doxycycline, strong recommendation, high quality evidence, and here are the references. Like they must have them. And yet there was only five references for all of these recommendations. And so I couldn't find the reference, like, because they didn't list it for the doxy. And I went hunting for it because I thought, I'm not really sure there's great evidence that post-exposure prophylaxis works. So maybe that's what they're getting at by saying only, maybe they should have emphasized the only give if you have these three criteria. But I found one study from 20 years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed the difference was just under 3% with post-exposure prophylaxis. So the number needed to treat was 37. And the adverse events was triple. Okay, that's a relative. Ooh, what was it actually? It was actually 19% increase, absolute increase. So the number needed to harm was five with doxy, and the number needed to treat was 37. I'm like, so anyways, it's just me. I would really like to see and pull the primary articles that inform their position. But obviously, I've got a problem and I go deeper into these things than most people. Well, and that's really 
I mean, that's kind of why guidelines exist, right? Because we can't all go in, look at all the literature on every question. And so I think that really increases the responsibility of the guideline creators to make sure that we can trust them. That's why the National Academies talked about guidelines we can trust. We want yes. to be able to trust the guidelines. And they did a lot of good things on this guideline yeah. that makes it trustworthy. But the guidelines for guideline writing says the guideline writers shouldn't have conflicts of interest. And where possible, the chair and the co-chair shouldn't have any. Now, they understand that sometimes there might be, but how did they grade that? How do you assess that? I think that's a real area of maybe it's just overdriving my skepticism and stuff like that. But I just like to see the references. And they can interpret it, but can you please put the link for those people who want to look at it? I don't think it would have taken much because they did the work. They were able to put two pages of conflicts of interest. Why couldn't they put two pages of references? that supported each of their statements for anybody who wanted to look it up. Maybe they were all conflicted because one of them invented the little device that they have to take the ticks out. Well, I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, you've got three different societies, right? You've got the Infectious Disease Society of America. You've got the Neurology, Academy of Neurology, and the American College of Rheumatology. And so that's why you get, you know, a large panel right, of individuals on that. And the potential for having conflicts of interest would, of course, go up. But that doesn't make any of the recommendations wrong, of course. Bottom line. This well-done guideline gives us guidance on what to do in patients to prevent or treat Lyme disease and highlights areas where there is not enough literature. Bonus paper. Can we have a bonus? Ooh, bonus time. A Christmas bonus, if you will. Christmas bonus? We're all going to be rich. That's no, not that kind of bonus. So we know that many of you celebrate many different holidays in December, but we wanted to particularly call out the risks of Christmas. And so this paper is from BMJ Christmas Edition from 2020, and it is entitled The Harms and the Christmas Factor, or the Xmas Factor. And the so, X factor. Yes, exactly. So basically, this person, always when I read these, I'm like, why didn't I think of doing this study? This person basically did a review of all the ways that the medical literature talks about how people were harmed. They did a really impressive literature search. And so there are preventable harms from cards, tree decorations, presents, harms from overeating and overdrinking. Did you have any favorite harms that they highlighted in here? Well, I, I, not a favorite highlight, but I like some of their outcomes. The jollies and the hollies, the joyous <laughs> outcomes of living longer at Yuletide or the jollies and the hollies, which was happiness outweighs less lean years. Yeah, so someone who in the medical literature had arsenic poisoning from his bright green Christmas card painting, that was in 1876. Lots of references to falling off ladders. Kids have swallowed so many different kinds of Christmas-related items, bulbs, confetti stars, Christmas tree-shaped decorations. <laughs> Needles from Christmas trees can cause breathing problems by penetrating the bronchial tree. And maybe my favorite, a pet hamster acquired as a Christmas present gave viral choreomeningitis to 57 people. <laughs> I have a pet hypothesis, speaking as a nice segue, that the decade of life you're at is the rungs of ladder you go up to either put up the lights or take down the lights. So if you're 60, you're up a six-foot ladder. If you're 70, you're up a seven. By the time you're 80, you're up an eight-foot ladder, putting up or taking down Christmas <laughs> decorations. That's a very good hypothesis. So Christmas 
I don't think Christmas is cost effective given the balance of benefits and harms. And that's the hypothesis that these authors introduce. Christmas may not be cost effective. Well, I think that, you know, it would have been a more robust study if they had looked at other holidays that take place during this season for a harm reduction strategy. Like what would have been a better festival or better holiday to celebrate. And so, you know, Steve, you were saying, geez, I wish I had come up with that idea. So we could always compare this study and contrast it to celebrating the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. And, you know, there is danger to Hanukkah. You know, you have to light multiple candles over eight nights and let those candles burn all the way down. I mean, that's a fire hazard. And how about cooking all those latkes in oil and eating all those deep fried foods, let alone injuries from spinning dreidels and eating all that Hanukkah gelt? So we should put this in perspective, like how dangerous and cost effective is Christmas compared to another holiday celebrated at the same time like Hanukkah? Genius. So genius. we're going to have to work on this for the next (laughs) BMJ Christmas edition. Mind exploding. So whatever holiday you celebrate, please make it safe. Yeah, I think that's a great bottom line is enjoy the holidays with family and friends and celebrate what you want to celebrate. And hopefully you have a safe and healthy new year. Take care, everybody. I think I can sum this all up. Okay, time for the summary. PCMA. PCMA, Article 1. Paper number one, Comparative Effectiveness of Aspirin Dosing in Cardiovascular Disease in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I know you see this too, Vanessa. When a patient comes in, you know, they've had a heart attack or they've had a stroke, you're in the emergency department, you're the inpatient doc, you're in the clinic. They always say, should I take a full strength aspirin or a baby aspirin when you tell them to take an aspirin? Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah, so this paper actually tried to figure out if a full dose of 325 milligrams of aspirin might be better than the 81 milligrams. And you know what? It really didn't. It didn't really find that it did or that it didn't. So we'll stick with the baby aspirin for now. Paper number two, sodium glucose co-transporter protein inhibitors and glucagon-like peptide receptor agonists for type 1 diabetes, systematic review and network meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. This was a huge network and meta-analysis of 764 trials with over 400,000 patients included, and it showed that both of these two medication classes decrease all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, and non-fatal MI and chronic kidney disease. There were a few differences between them in that the SGLT2 inhibitors were better choice for those with heart failure, but also came with an increased risk of genitourinary infections. So depending on your patient profile, these really do seem to be the best second-line treatment after metformin. Paper 3, Pharmacological Blood Pressure Lowering for Primary and Secondary Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease Across Different Levels of Blood Pressures, an Individual Participant-Level Data Meta-Analysis in Lancet. And I liked this study, but more than I liked this study, I love that Steve picked up that its premise is provocative, and I'm using Steve's word there. It's provocative in that it encourages us to think of hypertension in the broader context of a patient's risk for cardiovascular disease. Rather than looking at a specific number, we should look at what their overall risk is for getting a heart attack and stroke and treat accordingly. 
I mean, I really don't think that we should be treating people with systolic blood pressures of 120. We shouldn't be putting them on antihypertensives. But I really like the thought process and the thought exercise that this paper presented. Thank you for writing it. Paper number four, Frequency of Administration of Standardized Screening Questions in Federally Qualified Health Centers from JAMA Internal Medicine 2021. Now, we all love a clinical tool to guide our investigations in management of a patient. Understanding our patient's mental health symptoms or their patterns of tobacco use, these things are all definitely helpful and those questionnaires can help with that. But it seems that many places are actually using the screening questionnaires too often, which takes up valuable clinical time. I wonder if tying questionnaire completion to financial rewards for the clinics has anything to do with this. That's something that came out in this paper, which really shocked me. Things that make you go, hmm. Paper 5, The Effect of High-Frequency Spinal Cord Stimulation in Patients with Painful Diabetic Neuropathy, a Randomized Control Trial in JAMA Neurology 2021. And if you are the type of person who takes studies and files them in an old-school file cabinet, you will need to file this one under T for too good to be true. Stephen Ken identified several flaws in this paper, including the fact that the conflict of interest levels were through the roof with this paper. So they do not endorse these results. They think they're too good to be true. And I, frankly, am inclined to agree with them. Paper number six, the catastrophization effects of an MRI report on the patient and surgeon and the benefits of clinical reporting, reports from an RCT and blinded trials from the European Spine Journal. I love this paper, and I hope that it will get publicity across all fields of medicine. Because it showed very elegantly that if you use scary words to describe findings on an MRI, the patient will be worse off in both statistical and clinically significant fashions, experiencing more stress and more pain, and clinicians might also alter the treatment courses they prescribe. Patients increasingly have access to their own charts, and without a primary care doctor there to filter and perhaps explain these nuances, fear and stress can certainly ratchet up. Words matter, so choose them wisely. Paper number seven, Efficacy, Acceptability, and Safety of Muscle Relaxants for Adults with Nonspecific Low Back Pain, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis in BMJ. The study showed that giving patients non-benzo antispasmodics didn't really impact their disability level, but it did increase their adverse events and only had a small impact on pain. So while I can, most of us are out there looking for the preferred treatment for helping our patients with low back pain. Muscle relaxants just aren't it. Paper number eight, six versus 12 hours of single balloon catheter placement with oxytocin administration for labor induction, a randomized controlled trial in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology 2021. This study in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology compared six versus 12 hours of balloon catheter placement along with oxytocin administration for the induction of pregnant women with an unripe cervix. Aside from loathing the term unripe cervix, I found this study pretty interesting as the patients with only six hours of catheter insertion went into active labor and delivered more rapidly than those who'd had it for 12 hours, and the harms across the groups were comparable. Paper 9. Interphysician Weight Bias, a Cross-Sectional Observational Survey Study to Guide Implicit Bias Training in the Medical Workplace in the Academy of Emergency Medicine. So this was a survey of emergency physicians to assess to see if they were biased in some way, shape, or form against physicians who were overweight and obese. And not surprisingly, the survey found that physicians do harbor 
biases towards their overweight colleagues. This is a good reminder that many of us hold biases, whether conscious or unconscious, and things for us to be aware of as we interact with our colleagues. Paper 10, Clinical Practice Guidelines by the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the American Academy of Neurology, and the American College of Rheumatology, the 2020 Guidelines for the Prevention, Diagnosis, and Treatment of Lyme Disease, published in 2021. Now, Steve liked this guideline as it avoided making statements about issues for which there was a lack of evidence, which I also appreciate. But Ken was rightly concerned as two of the nine guideline pages were actually taken up with conflicts of interest for the guideline members, which is a bit of a scary ratio. Only nine pages long, which is great for a guideline. Two pages of conflicts? Eh, not so great. (laughs) However, a key thing to remember from this guideline, which is probably one of the issues that primary care providers face most commonly in practice, is when to give prophylaxis. So consider prophylaxis for patients within 72 hours of tick removal only if the tick was definitely a deer tick, which means, yes, you are going to be spending a lot of time looking at pictures of deer ticks and peering at tiny little bits of bugs that your patients bring in, if Lyme was endemic in the region, and if it was attached for more than 36 hours. Clearly, there are more issues in the guideline that are covered, but this is a great place to start. And given that these deer ticks are spreading more and more, we would all do well to remember to read up on it. And on to the rest of the show... It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hobie gave us some advice on how to better care for our patients with borderline personality disorder, including reminding us that interaction with these patients can be challenging. And he offered some suggestions such as educating ourselves and our staff, coming from a place of empathy, remembering not to take the patient's behavior personally, and to work hard to get our patients into therapy groups that have been shown to be helpful. The generalist. In The Generalist, you and Jake Anderson reviewed some of the indications and contraindications for VTE prophylaxis in hospitalized patients, and then Adrian Salim joined me for a chat about trigeminal neuralgia. This can be an all-consuming pain disorder, and patients who have it have often seen literally tons of specialists and have undergone so many tests and procedures. So be kind and compassionate, acknowledge their pain, and maybe try some carbamazepine, or get them to try it. Rural Medicine Talks. And rounding up the show, there's Rural Medicine, where Eric Quentin joined you to discuss the rescue and care of avalanche victims. Some great practical reminders here for dealing with hypothermia and remembering that avalanche patients are also trauma patients. Now, the other shows in the MRAP universe have been busy as well. There's a new C3 episode coming out this month. EMA reviews the top emergency medicine papers for the month. And on MRAP, there were some great pieces, some things that you should really listen to, like the one on kids and marijuana intoxication, and also another on treating victims of sexual assault. So many great learning opportunities to be had as we wrap up 2021. Thank you all so much for listening to the show. All of us here at Right on Prime wish you a safe, healthy and joyful end of the year and we can't wait to have you back with us again right here in january 2022 but until then keep doing what you do because what you do matters jingle jingle